This is Sean Bull and Sam Swartz with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources released their wolf population estimates for the state today. According to the Associated Press, the DNR reported that wolf populations are stable in the state, between 800 and 1,200 individuals. Wisconsin allowed a wolf hunt last February before the state and federal courts put a halt to that practice. Conservationists fear that the move, that the more than 200 wolves killed in the hunt would set back wolf populations in the state, but it would appear that the population bounced back healthily. New text messages from Fred Prane, a member of the Wisconsin Natural Resources Board, reveal that Prane refused to step down from his seat on the board after his six-year term expired in order to make sure the board stayed in Republican hands. Prane refused to vacate his seat following the election of Tony Evers to governor, functionally guaranteeing that Republicans maintained control of the board as long as they controlled the legislature and could refuse to confirm Evers' nominee to the seat. Lawsuits continue to swirl around Prane, and recent text messages that have been made part of the public record show that Prane was in communication with Republican legislators and coordinated a strategy so that Republicans could remain in control, according to the Badger Project. Prane had previously denied that he had coordinated his decision with state lawmakers. While Evers and Attorney General Josh Call had sued to remove Prane, the Republican-controlled Wisconsin Supreme Court rejected their case. The university athletic director has fired Paul Christ as the head coach of the University of Wisconsin-Madison's football team. Christ had been uh, with the team since 2015. The move comes after the Badgers' second consecutive major loss and is the first time a UW football coach has been fired since 1989, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Christ is entitled to a $19 million payout for being fired per his contract, although the university may have negotiated a lower settlement. The city of Madison released a statement today to announce that former city attorney Mike May has died. May was the city attorney from 2004 to 2020 and staffed over 360 city council meetings, adding up to more than a year of his life. The statement honored May for his steady and wise leadership, as well as the many attorneys that he helped mentor. A Madison man reached a settlement regarding a police misconduct lawsuit he had filed against the city. While the terms of the settlement say that the city does not admit wrongdoing, the city will pay the man $1.1 million over the course of 30 years. The settlement comes after video footage emerged of the Madison police tackling him in 2019 in his own basement, then putting a hood on him and repeatedly punching him in the head, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. At the time, he was 17 years old. An outside agency reviewed the evidence in the case and found that the officer's use of force was within accepted methods, but that they had missed opportunities that they could have that could have led to a better outcome. And now on to today's top stories. After spending last week teasing his 2023 plans, County Executive Joe Parisi released his full 2023 county budget proposal today. The budget is not free from inflation, however, coming at more than $80 million more than last year's budget. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has the story. 
Dane County Executive Joe Parisi released his full 2023 budget proposal today, prioritizing support services and criminal justice reform. The total proposed budget comes out to $834 million, with an operating budget of just over $712 million and a capital spending budget of around $121 million. The proposed budget is an over 10% increase from the 2022 budget, or around 80 million dollars more. To pay for this increased budget, the average Madison home will see their taxes raised by around $30. Executive Parisi released his budget at a press conference held at Second Harvest Food Bank, highlighting the need for increased access to food in Dane County. The proposed budget includes an additional $6 million in funding for the Second Harvest Food Bank's Farm to Food Bank program, which connects local farmers with food banks to provide fresh produce to people in need. Executive Parisi says that this money will help the food bank to continue to provide a proven good. Our partnership is brought in and boxed up over $20 million in food for families across the county. Under Dane County's Farm to Food Bank program, Second Harvest has placed over $16 million in food orders with local Dane County farmers and producers. And in partnership with 165 partner agencies, distributed over 10.5 million pounds of locally grown and sourced food. In addition to funding to Second Harvest, the proposed budget also includes $1.5 million to the county's largest food pantry, the River Food Pantry, in order to build a new home for the pantry. Parisi's proposed budget also includes $1.3 million to focus on criminal justice reform. That will include a new independent Department of Justice Reform and Equity. That department will be tasked with running a community court program, which Parisi says builds on some of the county's prior work in restorative justice. In 2015, we created Dane County's Tamara Grigsby Office of Equity and Inclusion. We decriminalized marijuana, added juvenile justice staff to work directly with young people at risk, and funded various mentoring programs designed to show alternatives to negative behaviors. Thanks to the leadership of former Supervisor Sheila Stubbs, Dane County's Community Restorative Court continues to provide sound alternatives to incarceration for those ages 17 through 25 who commit crimes or receive municipal citations. The budget looks to create a pilot program for the community court, providing a more community-oriented approach to criminal behavior as an alternative to incarceration. While the details on the program will be decided if the program makes it through budget deliberations, the community court will create a link between the criminal justice system and established support services, such as those for mental health, substance abuse, employment, and housing. To achieve this, the budget includes around $121,000 for a community court coordinator who would work with programs in the community to create the program. Notably absent from the budget is increased funding for the Dane County Jail Consolidation Project. As inflation continues to drive up the price tag for a new Dane County Jail, the county is about $10 million short of what they need to build the jail. While multiple plans went before the county board in August to either increase funding or scale back the project, all three proposed changes failed. But regardless to whether the jail project moves forward, Parisi warns against losing sight of creating a more equitable criminal justice system. As we build upon and expand our commitment to criminal justice reform, the time has come to cement our commitment and state unequivocally that criminal justice reform 
were must be forever a priority of Dane County government. Budget deliberations will begin this week, with the full board expected to approve the budget in early November. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggehout. We had a fair weekend to start off the month of October, but that fall weather we're used to is almost upon us. WORT weather producer Caitlin Davis has more. The nice weather from the weekend is here to stay for a few more days, but then we're going back to our Midwest winter feeling. Temperatures will be dropping later into the week. Our current temperatures are sitting at 63 degrees with winds coming from the southeast at 5 miles per hour and the humidity is sitting at 48%. A year ago today, the high in Madison was 65 degrees, so we were not too far off from the temperatures we felt last year. The record high for October 3rd in Madison was 84 degrees. Too bad we aren't enjoying the same weather now. The UV index reached 5 today, and if you were out enjoying the Badger football game or the Dane County's farmer market this weekend for an extended amount of time, you may have gotten a sunburn. This will continue as the UV index is continuing to fluctuate in the moderate category, so remember to protect your skin. The sun is now not rising until 6.58 a.m. and sets at 6.35 p.m., just adding even more into that fall feel. Allergens will not be present in the next three days. All are currently in the none category. And now a fun fact you ought to know about. The fall season. Only Americans really call it fall. Originally, fall was called harvest or autumn, but now fashionably, it's called fall. Tomorrow's temperatures are looking to be pleasant, the high looking to reach 72 degrees, but not until the later afternoon. Low winds will be coming from the south and southwest, and humidity will be fluctuating around 50%. Tomorrow will also be very little cloudy, and early morning temperatures will start at 40 degrees once again. The UV index should also be reaching 5 again tomorrow. Wednesday is looking to be a nice day, highs possibly breaking the 60s until the later afternoon. Winds will start off low, but will become more persistent into the later afternoon. Humidity will be higher with a slight chance for some rain. It will be mostly cloudy out, and the UV index will only look to reach 3. Thursday is looking to reach the low 60s with considerable cloudiness and a chance for showers. Winds will be between 10 and 20 miles per hour, so make sure you hold on to your hats. Friday and Saturday looking to be more miserable, sitting between the high 40s and the low 50s with high winds once again. With WORT and Madison with your weather report, I'm your producer, Caitlin Davis. It's now 6.17 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Earlier today, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments for the case of Sackett v. EPA, a case that could have major implications for the future of the Clean Water Act across the country. 
Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Scott Strand, senior attorney with the Environmental Law and Policy Center, a nonprofit advocacy group dedicated to environmental justice across the Midwest. The group filed a brief in the case, saying that overturning the EPA's ruling could jeopardize the health of our water across the entire country. So, Scott, just to to start things off here, give me a little bit of background on this case, Sackett v. EPA. What what happened that sort of brought this case uh, before the court? Well, there's been a, a longstanding dispute um, over how far the Clean Water Act, the Federal Clean Water Act, extends when it comes to the issue of wetlands. Um, there have always been a couple of polar positions, one that all wetlands are covered by the federal law, and on the other hand, that none of them are. And over the years, the the EPA, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and the U.S. Supreme Court have adopted a number of different tests to determine what how far the, the Clean Water Act extends. It's all about the definition of a phrase in the statute, which is waters of the United States. Um, that's what the law says it covers, but it doesn't define what that is. And so there have been different tests over the years. Um, wh- where this case arose, um, this was a, a couple that wanted to build a house up in northern Idaho. Um, they bought a lot. Um, there's some dispute about how wet that lot was and how much indication there was that it was kind of swampy. But they it doesn't matter because what they did is they filled it up with a lot of gravel and essentially got ready to try to build it. Um, the EPA got wind of that and they said, no, you can't do that. You can't put that material there without a permit because we that was wetlands. It is adjacent enough to a nearby lake, either directly or through a, a ditch and a tributary. And so if you do pollution there, it's going to have impact on the downstream lake, and so it's covered by the Clean Water Act. Well, they fought this for, you know, it's been almost decades now, but uh, they've been going back and forth on this. But that's the set of facts that got the issue up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, the EPA had applied what's called the significant nexus test, which is that if you have a wetland and it's not essentially right on top of a of kind of what we call a traditionally navigable water, like a river or lake stream, then there has to be a significant nexus, and that requires looking at the science. Um, Given the physical, chemical, biological situation on the site, is there enough of a connection from a scientific basis to justify including it within the scope of the act? Um, That's the test the agencies have been applying for the last 10 years or so. the Sacketts are saying, and the conservative groups that are representing them, are taking the position that, no, that significant nexus test is too broad, um, and that the only wetlands, well, first of all, they say, well, wetlands aren't waters. They just take that absolute position. They say, but they can still be included, but only if there is a continuous surface connection between the traditionally navigable water and the wetland. So, for example, um, like a backwater in the Wisconsin River would, would count, would could be included, even if it wasn't wet all year round. But anything further away from that, where the connection is maybe with subsurface water or because of the chemistry of the soil 
or because of some other physical characteristics, that wouldn't matter. Uh, that science wouldn't matter. All that matters is whether there's that visual surface connection with uh, water that is indisputably under the act. Um, and that's the argument they made to the U.S. Supreme Court um, today um, with the EPA defending its um, the significant nexus test that they've been applying for the last 10 years. And that will be um, you know, what people hope the court will decide. They will either pick one of those, they'll either uphold the EPA, they'll accept the Sackett's view, or they could come up with a third view, um, something different about how to define waters of the United States, which would then affect what the agencies do with uh, rulemaking. Both the EPA and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers are are currently involved in rulemaking to try to, to define this term. Um, but the court didn't wait until they were done to review that. They, they, they kind of preemptively took this case in order to, to get their two cents into the issue. And so those will be going on simultaneously. The court will be deciding and uh, the agencies will be finalizing their rule. And we'll see whether or not they, they come to the same place. So then, so looking at this, what what are some of the sort of larger implications that are at stake here? You mentioned the Clean Water Act and sort of how how that can be yes. affected by all of this. What what can this case sort of have on the uh, health of our waters? What sort of effects could it have? Well, what I think happens if the court adopts uh, a very narrow reading of how far the Federal Clean Water Act extends, we're simply going to lose a lot more wetlands. And when we lose wetlands, um, we're going to lose those functions, those ecological services that wetlands provide. Um, we'll have dirtier water to contend with, um, often involving drinking water. We will have more problems with flooding. We will have more problems with groundwater not being adequately recharged, and we will have damage to, to critical wildlife habitat. Um, if the court, on the other hand, um, except something close to where the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers currently are, um, there are a lot more wetlands that will be preserved. Um, remember, we've already lost in some parts of the Midwest, you know, 80%, even more, um, of the wetlands that were here before, um, before, essentially before industrialization. And that has, you know, caused a, and exacerbated a number of the problems that we face today, um, especially as the climate changes and we start seeing more extraordinary weather events, um, wetlands only become more and more important. Um, so those are the implications. Um, you know, there will be some states, if the court adopts a narrow view, there will be some states that will try to fill in the gap themselves. Um, and that's an argument that the Sackets and their, their supporters have made, that this is something that the states can handle. But what we're seeing around the Midwest and really around the country is a lot of states have already decided that if the, if the court restricts the jurisdiction of the federal government, they're going to restrict the authority of the state government just as much. So states have already made the decision that if uh, the federal government isn't going to regulate this part of uh, our landscape, then they're not going to either. It's going to remain unregulated. So. So the stakes are high. It's not just that this is a federal versus state thing. Who can do it better? It's that are we going to regulate these? Are we going to protect these wetlands or aren't we? And that's going to be, uh, it'll vary from state to state, but that's what we do face in a number of, number of states. Um, you know, we'll see what happens in Wisconsin. Uh, Wisconsin's a state that has tried to 
restrict the authority of the state to no more than what the federal government does. And so that might be one of the states that would really reduce the scope of its wetland protection. Not clear. I don't know what will happen for sure, but it could be one of the states. States like Indiana or Ohio have been pretty explicit. They've said we're if government, federal government pulls back, we're pulling back too. So the consequences are pretty significant. Um, and the fact that it's you know focused on wetlands in the Midwest, it puts you know our our rivers, lakes, and streams at you know considerable risk, and that includes the Great Lakes. Um, the, the water quality in the Great Lakes depends a lot on the filtering that the that the wetlands uh, and the, the sometimes are adjacent to the tributaries that run down into the lakes. And so um, the um, you know we can't quantify it. We don't know exactly what the implications will be, but uh, we can be pretty well assured that they could very well be significant. On the other hand, if the court adopts something closer to where the the EPA is, you know the science is only telling us you know more and more how just how interrelated um, and how connected different bodies of water are. Um, there's a notion of what they call isolated wetlands that don't have any connection with anything else. And that's, uh, there, there are fewer of those all the time because we know more about um, how, you know, about things like groundwater flows and subsurface water flows and how uh, a wetland that doesn't appear to have any visual connection to a, a downstream body of water can still be very significant in determining what happens. Um, you know, there are wetlands that are in 100-year floodplains, and we're, we're seeing, um, you know, uh, flooding occur in those floodplains. And so you end up with pollution that seems like it's upstream having a direct effect on the bodies of water that we're all kind of determined to protect. So um, I think the impl implications are, are, on one level, kind of unknowable, but there's good reason to think that the implications will be significant. I've been talking with Scott Strand, senior attorney at the Environmental Law and Policy Center, about the oral arguments heard today at the U.S. Supreme Court uh, on Sackett v. EPA. Scott, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. All right. Thank you. The time right now is 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news here on WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz, here with my co-host, Sean Bull. Thanks for joining us. It's Monday, which means that Forward Lookout host Brenda Conkle sits down with Dylan Brogan to break down all the meetings happening in Madison and Dane County this week. Budget season is officially here, and this week, Dane County debates their budget while the city of Madison decides which buildings around town will be demolished. It's Monday, and that means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. We'll start with Dane County. So what's uh, personnel and finance up to today? So they have a ton of things on their agenda. Um, a lot of routine things, not a whole bunch of exciting things. Um, they do have a segment of the North Mendota Trail that Middleton will be taking over instead of the county. Um, there's some additional funding for the CARES team for the city of Madison. Um, Henry Vila Zoo staff will be doing some international travel. Got to get some special approvals for that. And then um, they are they do have a contract 
that change order for the jail. So that is always controversial. Um, and then they are looking at um, the ARPA funding for, for the sheriff's office. They got to do an uh, MOU regarding that. And then they're going to have their preliminary discussions about the budget and then uh, talk about the how their what their calendar is going to be. Um, if you do look at my blog, you'll see that a lot of um, groups are looking at budget this week. So they're getting their initial presentations from staff mostly. So at five o'clock, zoning and land regulation is doing that. And then at 530, public protection and judiciary will be doing that as well. Budget time. Is it yeah. uh, is this going to be a tougher budget uh, than past years because of the lack of pandemic funding? Or do, do we have any idea of what it's looking like? Uh, you know, I just read a, an email from Joe Parisi that said that they're giving the nonprofits a 9% cost of living increase, which wow. is insane. Well, that's that how much inflation never, has gone up, though. Right. But that has never happened before. That was that is an amazing jump. Like we used to fight for a 1% COLA increase. So um, that is amazing. So that must I take it. That means that there's some additional money in the budget still. Okay. Yeah. Well, and interesting to see how this jail project will uh hash itself out. I know that's not exactly being debated right now, but that can has been kicked perhaps forever. <laughs> exactly. All right. So we'll see. All right. Thursday, the Dane County Broadband Task Force is um, getting an update on a bunch of stuff. It's a ver- it's a hybrid meeting. Um, so part of it will be in a city county building in room 354, but you can also uh, zoom in. So what's that, uh, that going to be about? Um, they're going to be looking at some of the qualifications for using some of the ARPA money, some of the COVID funds. Um, and then they are looking at hiring uh, the consultant for the broadband engineering assessment. Um, so it's AECOM is the name of the company that they're hiring for that. And then they are looking at um, some um, interim methods to provide service um, and funding and doing some research there. So um, still, you know, kind of getting this project up off the ground, but it's it's moving. So that's good. On Thursday, we have uh, the executive committee of the county board. Again, like you mentioned, uh, these committees are really focused on the budget. But um, we have an executive committee meeting of the Dane County Board of Supervisors and then a full meeting of the, the county board. Can you go over the highlights for us? Um, sure. Yeah. Executive committee will be hearing budget presentations again from the county exec's office, the clerk's office, the equity and inclusion office, as well as the county board office. Um, So that's what they'll be doing right before that public and transportation. We'll be getting some more presentations right after that public protection and judiciary will be hearing some presentations. Um, And then the county board will have their regular meeting. There is a a really long agenda again. um, Most of it is pretty routine. There's a couple zoning things that might be of interest. There's a salvage yard and some mini warehouses. Um, And then again, the North Mendota trail, um, um, bike path being taken over by the city of Middleton, as well as that uh, international travel for Vilasu, the jail consolidation change order, and then um, the CARES funding, as well as then the money for the sheriff's office. Well, that was Dane County. Let's move on to the city of Madison. Um, we, yeah, well, tonight we had a number of meetings. Um, why don't we go over what happened with the plan commission, which got started at 530 and it was a virtual meeting. Oh, they may be still going to Wednesday. They had a very, very, very long agenda. So you might want to take a look. Um, I tried to pick out some of the highlights. Um, there's um, a project on uh, 121 East Wilson that's got 337 dwelling units. There's a 55-room hotel on the 600 block of Dayton Street, an 84-unit apartment building on Schrader Road. There's a car wash, 190 apartments at the 
3800 block of East Washington. Um, there is a cooking school that's going to be going in on the 900 block of East Main Street. A couple demolitions um, of some buildings without uh, a proposed um, use for that property, which is kind of unusual when they do that. Um, there's a community living arrangement that is for a, a home for folks um, who are homeless who are at the end of life. And then there is everybody's favorite, a single family home exceeding 10,000 square feet. Um, so um, they have a packed agenda, though. You might want to take a look. There may be something going on in your neighborhood. 10,000 square feet. All right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk now, uh, a meeting also happening, um, it, we're still on Monday, right? At 5.30, the the city's the city-county homeless issues committee, they're getting some presentations tonight, right? They are. They're getting uh, presentations from both the city and the county on their affordable housing development funds. Um, and as everybody knows, rent keeps going up and we keep having, you know, shortages of apartments here. I, I hear we have to build 4,000 units a year and we've never hit that mark um, just to just to keep up with the pace of people moving to Madison. So that's a really important, those are very important funds that can um, help our community uh, get more affordable housing. They're also going to be getting a presentation about um, the core program, which is the rental assistance they've given out um, collectively. The city and county has given out $46 million to help people pay rent during uh, the pandemic. And then they are getting a presentation from Dane County CDBG, um, and then they're going to be talking about what their recommendations will be for the Madison and Dane County budget processes. You see these buildings going up. It's like, who's going to live in these things? Well, we it's easy to forget just how many people are coming into the community that were not here last year. Right, exactly. There's, I looked at the, the 2022 snapshot and uh, the, the highest number of units we built in the last 10 years was 3,700 and it was in 2021. So you know, we're just not keeping up with the pace of people moving into Dane County, which then drives down the vacancy rates, which drives up the rent. And then kind of a um, it's a notice of a possible quorum of, of many city of Madison committees, but it's happening on Sunday at 1 p.m. at the Catholic um, Multicultural Center. Um, what's that? What's, there's some sort of town hall happening. Yep. Um, it's called the Immigrant Town Hall. Um, and so they are having public officials come in to integrate inter- interact with people in small groups um, and it will be facilitated by an interpreter but um, elected officials will have an opportunity to talk to folks about what they do and how the public can interact with their offices and then they will also hear firsthand from some of the experiences of immigrants who live in Dane County so um, a special meeting on a Sunday um, but it sounds like that could be really productive. And to find out more about what's happening this week in local government, you can head on over to forwardlookout.com. Thank you, Brenda, for keeping us in the know about what's happening in local government this week. Thanks, Dylan. Yesterday was the anniversary of the Tlatelolca Massacre in Mexico City in 1968. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. The intro and outro are from a piece on the massacre by NPR's All Things Considered. The troops have moved in. It started off as a peaceful demonstration. The army was circling this plaza called the Plaza de Three Cultures. They were holding a peaceful rally. But now the troops have come and you can hear what it sounds like. 
Yesterday, October 2nd, is the anniversary of the Tataloka massacre in Mexico City in 1968. The massacre was the culmination of increasing police and military violence against months of mostly peaceful student protests. Around 10,000 college and high school students had gathered in the Plaza de las Tres Cultares to protest government suppression of earlier demonstrations where a number of students were killed. They called for an end to police repression and the freeing of all political prisoners. The students formed the National Strike Council, the Spanish acronym is CNH, to press their demands on the government. Many people not in the CNH gathered to listen to the speeches. They included neighbors from the residential complex on the plaza, bystanders, and children. The students had gathered outside the Chihuahua building, a 13-story apartment complex in the plaza. Among their chants were, We don't want Olympics, we want revolution. They did not call off the protests when they noticed increased military presence. Around 5.55 p.m., two helicopters, one from the police, one from the army, flew over the plaza. Red flares were shot from the nearby Mexican Ministry of Foreign Relations Tower. Around 6.15 p.m., another two flares were shot, this time from a helicopter, as 5,000 soldiers, 200 tanks, and trucks surrounded the plaza, blocking off exits. There was gunfire from the surrounding apartment buildings, shooting the soldiers below, who opened fire on the students, blaming them for the attack. Thousands of demonstrators fled in panic. Perhaps as many as 300 were killed by the police and military. No one knows for sure how many. Government sources initially claimed four people killed and 20 wounded, while eyewitnesses described the bodies of hundreds of young people being trucked away. Thousands of students were beaten and jailed. An unknown number disappeared. Documents eventually released under public pressure by the Mexican government as well as documents from the CIA and FBI reports from the period released by the National Archives, a U.S. watchdog group, indicate a secret government security branch of the Presidential Guard put together a special ops squad called the Olympia Battalion. That battalion set up snipers in the upper reaches of the apartment buildings and fired on the soldiers to provoke the massacre. The ensuing assault lasted two hours. The soldiers fired their way across the plaza, left dozens dead and many wounded. They then started firing into the apartment buildings nearby, responding to the battalion attack and into the crowds hitting protesters but also watchers and bystanders. Among those shot were students, journalists, including Italian reporter Oriana Valusi and children. Meanwhile, on the Chihuahua building, where the speakers stood, battalion members pushed people and ordered them to lie down on the ground near the elevator walls. People claimed these men were the people who shot first at the soldiers and the crowd. Video evidence shows at least two companies of Olympia Battalion hid themselves in the nearby apartment buildings and set up a machine gun in an apartment building in the Molina del Rey building. Other snipers were positioned on roofs. The government blamed armed provocateurs. The next morning, media reported 20 to 28 people killed, hundreds wounded, and hundreds more arrested. Most Mexican media parroted the government line of the students provoking the army's violent response. The Mexican public and activists have fought for answers and accountability for those responsible ever since. Many hold President Diaz Ordoz ultimately responsible. In 1977, seven years after his presidency was over, he was appointed ambassador to Spain. This caused bitter controversy, but Diaz defended his role in 1968. What I'm most proud of from those 
six years is the year 1968 because it allowed me to serve and save the country. Finally, in 2001, the pre-70-year reign was ended and the new president, Vincente Fox, ordered the release of previously secret documents confirming the responsibility of the Olympia Brigade. Last week, the chief of the Executive Commission for Victims Assistance admitted for the first time a state crime was committed. To this day, no one has been brought to justice for the Tataloka massacre. In 2018, reformers elected President Obrador, but not much change has occurred, and the Mexican people continue their quest for justice in the streets and in their workplaces. And that is our story for today. For the past is in the past, I'm Harry Richardson. We know that when the shooting begins, the first fellow who was shot was General Hernández Toledo, who was leading the army troops that entered the square. He was the first guy to, quote-unquote, fall. So we know that the first shots were not fired by the army against the students, but by somebody against the leader of the army troops. It's now 6.47 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. With the calendar turning to October, some Wisconsin artists find themselves busy at work ushering in the Halloween season. Whether they draw inspiration from Wisconsin legends, cemeteries, or their own mind, these artists incorporate the spooky and unusual into their work. WORT reporter Christopher Cartwright talked to some about their inspiration and processes. I'm in a shop where posters on the walls feature Wisconsin legends, ranging from the hodag to the Devil's Lake monster. The prints heavily feature dark blues, grays, and forest greens, reflecting foggy atmospheres and midnight mysteries. Nearby, Technicolor shirts with printed animal designs lie on shelves. So do glass mugs and greeting cards and candles. Zipdang, billed as the purveyors of the unmass-produced unusual, sits among gold-tinted trees at the corner of Monroe and Knickerbocker on Madison's west side. I oftentimes call myself half uh, graphic designer, half folklorist, or half historian, because I just, I love facts. I like looking into history. I like doing research. I like reading about things that happened uh, wherever I'm at, um, particularly like right now, obviously in Wisconsin. Um, So a lot of the prints that I make are based on um, history stuff. So like obviously the folklore series, uh, the Wisco Mythos prints are all um, Wisconsin folklore. just looking up these kind of weird little folkloric or um, kind of spooky stories that happen in Wisconsin because we're a very weird state and making art out of it. That's Mike Bass, one half of Zipdang. He specializes in creating the prints on the walls, which range from facts about Madison lakes to urban legends. 
Natalie Bass designs the clothing around the store. Well, my design style is definitely inspired by the 60s and the fashion and color and style of everything being very monochromatic and bold and bright. Um, I love, you know, bold, bright patterns. So that's what you see when you come in here on almost everything. Some of the artwork draws inspiration from Madison and Wisconsin. Mike says these expanded naturally from his interests. That started as like I wanted to do a poster or print about the name of the lakes here in in Madison. And then when I did the research, it ballooned into something much bigger. Same with the folklore and some of the other, um, like the farmer's market prints. Those all kind of have a Wisconsin-centric theme to them. Natalie agrees. She also says one of the benefits of being a local artist is forging connections with the community. When you have repeat customers and neighborhood people and friends that come in that you know now because they're regulars, you can order and make things according to what people ask for and what people say they want. And that's a really huge benefit. And that's one of the most like rewarding and probably fun things about um, being a small business is when something I can make or order is something someone asks for and then they come in and get it and they're like, oh, this is so great. This is exactly what I wanted. And you've made that happen. Lately, they've been preparing for the Halloween season with plenty of themed accessories. They've created everything from skeleton t-shirts to Frankenstein kitchen towels while grinning devil faces gaze from coffee mugs. Another Wisconsin artist is also preparing for the Halloween season, this time with Christmas ornaments that sport devil faces. Artist Memento Moira, who prefers her artist name over her legal one, Andrea Jacoby, operates her studio as an online shop. I discovered her art at the Madison Odd Market pop-up a few weeks ago. Her art involves using material and images in creative ways. This ranges from jewelry to candles to clothing, all with a spooky or Victorian twist with influences from her upbringing. My father was Hungarian and my mom was into horror movies. So in the early 70s, I was watching Hammer Horror Films with my mom and I had commented to my family that uh, Dracula sounded like my grandfather. (laughs) So... My dad, having been uh, an English professor, uh, read me me Bram Stoker's Dracula, and I I don't think that I was even in elementary school. Um, So I've always been into the creepy. Moira draws her focus from everything around her, whether it's Milwaukee cemeteries to crumbling abandoned structures that litter the countryside. She sells everything from dresses printed with old, grainy Victorian photographs to skeleton key necklaces. Similar to Mike Bass, she draws from Wisconsin's weird side, especially the numerous legends that populate the state. Every town has their own spooky legend, whether whether that's the the old house down the road or, you know, the, you know, an accident that happened a hundred years ago at the mill. And sometimes you can still hear, you know, sometimes you can still hear the workers and, you know, there's a lot of paranormal and, and weird in Wisconsin. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Christopher Cartwright. Today's feature contributor, Harry Richardson, reviews two recent releases on the small screen. First, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Sword of Destiny, a pretty good movie that suffers by comparison to its predecessor. Then, In Dubious Battle, a rare American film about farm workers, strikers, 
and radicals. It is said, the swordsman will be remembered for 20 years beyond his passing. This is meant as praise. That was Glyph from the trailer for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Sword of Destiny, directed by Un Wu Ping, a great choreographer who worked on the original. This is a pretty good movie on its own merits, but has suffered because of being the sequel to Crouching Tiger. In fact, it got a 30% from Rotten Tomatoes critics, but I found the movie to be a lot of fun with a good cast led by Michelle Yeoh, the only member from the original movie. Yeoh reprises her role as the world-weary Yu Shu Ya, still guarding the Sword of Destiny. Donnie Yen, a Hong Kong action star, plays Silent Wolf, a veteran warrior who has a past involvement with Shu Ya. There is also Harry Shum Jr. as Wei Fang, a young bandit after the sword for the criminal leader Hades. Jason Scott Lee, first-time actor Natasha Leo Bordizzo, plays Snow Vase as the woman in the middle who seems like she could go either way. They all want the sword for their own purposes. This leads to great fight scenes. Sadly, some are done with CGI assistance in beautifully rendered sets with gorgeous scenery. New Zealand stands in for China. Our story opens with a somber Shu Yu seemingly mourning the passage of time, fretting over the saying, a scholar is remembered for five years after death, but a swordsman's legacy will linger for twenty. This is meant as praise, but she thinks, I believe it to be a curse. It seems she may indeed be cursed when her horse-drawn wagon is attacked, and we get a cool opening fight scene. The men after her never stood a chance. Then we see the reason for her journey, to pay her respects to a parted mentor and honor his family. But she is disturbed to see that the sword of destiny is not hidden away and heavily guarded. Her old mentor's son stubbornly disregards her concerns and soon comes to regret his decision. Shu Yu, meanwhile, calls for assistance, and we soon see a crew of exceptional fighters led by Silent Wolf. There's a particularly fine fight scene that takes place on the ice, where the combatants are skating as much as fighting in a fine, intricate dance. All in all, a fun action-adventure movie with a fine cast led by Michelle Yeoh and some wondrous fight scenes and amazing setting. The 2016 movie is playing on Netflix and is well worth your time. Next up, another film that has been out for a while on an unusual topic. My old man worked these fields. He had the nerve to stand up and say they weren't treating him right. And for that, they shot him like a dog. So who are we? We're the guys who are going to change all that. It's starting now. That was a clip from the trailer for Indubious Battle, directed, produced, and starring James Franco. The movie is based on the book of the same title by John Steinbeck. This is the rare American film that deals with the lives of working people, and even rarer still, deals with the lives of farm workers, strikes, and radicals. It perhaps also says something that Franco's inspiration comes from a book set in 1936. Franco plays Mac McLeod, a radical organizer. His exact group is a little vague in the movie. Is he in the IWW, or is he in the Communist party, CP. The book says IWW, but given the time and place, the California agricultural fields, in this case apple orchards, the CP designation seems most likely. Mac takes a raw recruit, Jim, Nat Wolf, with him to organize the mythical Torgus Valley. Problem is that the valley is controlled by three major growers who act in concert to keep the wages low. 
Mac and Jim go to work for Bolton, played by the great Robert Duvall, who has lured in desperate depression workers with a promise of work on $3 a day, then a respectable sum. Once there, he cuts the wages down to a dollar a day. One of the workers, London, played by an exceptional Vincent D'Onofrio, yells out, we can't live on a dollar a day. Bolton says they can take it or leave, but London again seems to represent most of the workers saying, but I spent almost all my money getting here. So they go to work in the fields, but they don't like it. Enter Mac and Jim. Mac knows the score in the valley and figures the workers are ripe for organizing, but needs to identify the natural leaders and find a spark to set the workers off. He finds one of those leaders in London. He and Mac ingratiate themselves by delivering a baby and coming to the aid of a single mom, Lisa. Selena Gomez. The spark is found when an older worker breaks his leg, falling off a defective ladder. The foreman try to hustle him off and get everyone back to work, but Mac seizes the moment to get people to walk out of the orchards. The workers elect London as their leader, and Jim and Mac bring in their crew to organize the strike. The strike takes up most of the movie with a fair amount of violence. Violence by the boss's minions inspires the fight back by the workers. In the real world, that violence was mostly met out by the boss's hired thugs, the highway patrol and the police. Most of the strikers in this period were Mexicans, Mexican-Americans, and Filipinos. Of the 30 strikes in the key San Joaquin Valley in the period between 1931 and 1941, 24 were led by the Cannery and Agricultural Workers Industrial Union, a CP-led union. An interesting movie, well worth checking out. It's showing on Hulu. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks so much for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporter tonight was Mike Moen. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Christopher Cartwright, Brenda Conkle, and Dylan Brogan, and to Nicholas Leet for technical production. Nate Carlin also engineered this show. Nate Weggehout produced this newscast, and Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.